Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID student ambassador Emily Ausubel interviews Roberto Patiño, founder and CEO of Caracas Mi Convive, and Thomas Apt, senior research fellow at CID. They discuss the role of community-based organizations in preventing violence in Latin America and how scientific evidence can help to guide the process. Thank you so much both for being here. I was thinking that maybe we could start today with you, Thomas, talking about how you and Roberto met. Sure. I met Roberto shortly after joining the Kennedy School. I had come from state government. I'd also served in national government working on criminal justice issues and issues of violence reduction. And I was starting to explore how some of the lessons that we learned at the state and federal level could be applied internationally and particularly in Latin America. And at that same time, I met Roberto, who really sought me out, who was sort of intensely interested in concrete ways that he could help back home. And he was very interested in this issue of violence reduction. And so he really found me and became a great relationship. He became my research assistant. He helped me run my first class. And then we partnered together to do a report that has since become quite influential about what works in terms of violence reduction based on evidence-based strategies and how those strategies might be implemented in Central America, but actually all across Latin America. And we've stayed in touch ever since. Okay, fantastic. So, Roberto, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you decided to found Caracas Mi Convive. What is this organization? What are you trying to achieve? And what were your goals as you set forward uh, founding it? Yes. But first, I would like to thank you all for the opportunity. And thanks to Thomas as well for inviting me here. It's very good to be back. So Caracas Mi Convive started five years ago. First, I was a student activist in the student movement in Venezuela, and then I became very active in the presidential campaign in 2012. I had the opportunity to visit more than 200 towns in the country and knock doors, asking people to vote, to participate. And I was very impressed by the level of the lack of credibility to politics, right? People were very skeptical, politicians as a, as a whole, and that brought me back to a reflection with my team that we needed to change our paradigms. And instead of, you know, trying to cover the country as a whole, we needed to focus our work and try to bridge the polarization that the country was experiencing. So we needed to work, instead of visiting 200 towns, we needed to visit 200 times the same community in order to build personal relationships of trust with people to develop concrete projects. And uh, after being uh, one year here at the Kennedy School, I flew back home, and the first call that I received was from my sister informing me that my father was uh, just kidnapped. And this is something that happens very often in Venezuela. It's uh, something that's random. They just pick someone out in the street, and then they start calling the family, asking for you know a couple of watches or a couple of hundred dollars, and they threaten that if you don't pay, they're going to kill the person, right? So this was a very difficult for me personally and for my family. Thankfully, my dad is okay. We later learned that the people who kidnapped him were police officers, actually. 
So that convinced me that I had to focus more on the issue of violence reduction. It was an issue that I had already a lot of interest in. It. But when I came back, I started, as Thomas was explaining, looking for everybody that knew something about it. And it was, uh, you know, it was not easy because there's not so many people at the Kennedy School who are focusing on this issue. But I was lucky to hear that someone like Thomas had just arrived. So we had a first conversation and he gave me a lot of advice to develop my PAE that I did to develop a policy for violence reduction in, in Caracas, in my city. So after I finished my studies and my work with Thomas, I decided to go back to Venezuela and implement some of the ideas that I learned here. Fantastic. So Thomas, maybe you can talk a little bit more about what are some of the key findings from your research and how you actually went about thinking about applying the research you were doing in the U.S. context to Latin America and to organizations like Caracas Mi Convive and what that process has been like? Sure. I think that one of the things that we've learned after 30 years of evaluation and research here in the United States is that crime, particularly serious crime, particularly violent crime, is sticky. It's highly concentrated. It clusters among very small groups of people, very small groups of places, and around certain behaviors. And that was a key finding that I felt quite confident about in the United States, that you could look at Boston, you could look at New York, you could look at LA, and you would find the same thing. A big question for Roberto and I as we started doing our research was whether the same thing was true in Latin America or whether it was a sort of dramatically different context. And I think we found through some of our field research that there were enough similarities that this research would be valuable. And in fact, more rigorous research has been done since that has sort of confirmed this finding again and again. So violence concentrates similarly, not exactly the same, but similarly in Caracas, in Buenos Aires, in, in Medellin, and, and all over. So that was very important. But then I think that is sort of on the problem side. There are lots of similarities about the problem, context, context. Young men, highly disadvantaged, without hope, engaging in often violent conflict, often for not very good reasons. On the solution side, on the capacity side, there is much more diversity. And that is one of the huge challenges. And so often when we talk about um, changing an approach from context to context, what really needs to change is the approach on the solution side, not on the problem side. So what does that look like? Maybe, Roberto, you can talk about that. What, yeah. what are the activities that your organization does to yeah. address crime? So actually in the project that I worked uh, for Thomas, we had the opportunity to visit five cities in the U.S. and also three cities in Central America. And we had the opportunity to observe a lot of interventions done by civil society and also by governments that were having some success in violence reduction. So when I came back, I brought some of those ideas to Caracas. We developed a workshop to bring capacities to communities, to empower communities, to explain how these dynamics of violence work 
how it concentrates and trying to gather some data from the community in order to develop a, an action plan. So, so we did. We printed a lot of maps from the poorest communities in the city. We went there. We explained what we have learned from violence and we confirmed with them that violence tends to concentrate in few hotspots and that there is a possibility for the community to act and also to demand policies from the government for a specific locations where crime is concentrating. We also decided that we needed to work with the people who are most affected by the problem on the two ends of the problem. On one hand, the victims of violence and how can we help them with their resiliency process and how to recover from what happened to them, but at the same time, how to channel their experiences, not into more violence, but into being part of the solution, you know, that energy that it's created. It's very impressive and inspiring to see how victims can become the primary source of hope for everybody. Because if someone who has uh, gone through so much, it's then capable of uh, coming back to the community and saying, you know what, I want to work for, for this to stop. I don't want anyone else suffering what I suffered. And that's one end of it. But the other end, which is also very important, is uh, working with youth at risk. So we are identifying with the community which youth are primarily unemployed, who not studying, who have uh, minor offenses in their past that come from vulnerable families. And we are partnering with uh, private businesses to offer them internship opportunities for them to have a, an, a path for inclusion. So I'm interested to hear a little bit more, too, about how your organization's activities have changed just in the past couple of years as the political situation in Venezuela has deteriorated and there's been a lot more instability. Are you still using the same tactics? Are you able to use those same tactics or are you thinking about different approaches? Yeah, they, actually, that's a, a very important question. Two years ago, we were doing a, in one hotspot in a community in Venezuela, we were doing a display of a movie for kids. And when we were doing that activity, one young girl approached me. She was six years old. Her name was Fabiola. And she told me, give me some food because I'm, I'm starving. And that was a reflection of the humanitarian crisis that we're going through Venezuela. And even though I considered that our work in violence reduction is very important, this was something that it's very urgent and that we need to do something about it if we want to keep working with these communities. So we developed an initiative that we proposed to the community that we were going to have a, an initiative that implied co-responsibility. Mm -hmm. So we're going to find ingredients to prepare lunches for the most at-need kids, but the community is going to put all the work for it. And um, the program has expanded heavily in the past two years. I mean, we're serving every day more than 1,000 lunches to children in uh, 10 communities in Caracas. And that has complemented our work in violence reduction because I'm uh, convinced that something that is fundamental to reduce violence is to build trust with the community, is to have a good relationship with the community, is to be able to mobilize the community. And since uh, this is one of the most urgent problems that the community is facing, being able to provide support and to partner with them with respect, this problem has also opened more doors to keep working on violence reduction. 
So I'm wondering if either or both of you can talk about some of the most exciting things that you have found through either the research or the work that you've done. What it, what seem to be some of the most successful approaches that you've identified for actually reducing violence in, in the communities that you're working in? Are you most interested in the strategies that have worked in the United States and might work in Latin America or the strategies that have actually worked in Latin America? I think either would be interesting to hear about. And if they don't apply across boundaries, that would be interesting to hear why you think that might be. Sure. So I think we know, I think we have a lot more confidence about the success stories in the United States. And there are success stories all across Latin America, but because many of those success stories have not been rigorously evaluated, we have less sort of confidence that you can really attribute the success in crime reduction to a particular intervention or a particular program. And so it's a sort of very challenging context to sort of learn lessons when there's not enough evaluation. In the U.S., there are sort of several areas of success. One area of success is an effort called focused deterrence, which directly engages the most dangerous gangs and groups in a community and presents sort of a unified message from a group of law enforcement, a group of community members, and a group of service providers. And the message is quite simple. It's basically, if you let us, we will help you but if you make us, we will stop you. And the message is basically that the shooting must stop, and we're here to welcome you back into the community if the shooting stops. And if not, law enforcement will respond. So that's been very successful in the United States, and there's a lot of research to back that up. Another area is cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is a key approach that helps intervene with youth who have a history of minor offenses, who are starting to get out of control and might someday become violent offenders or are already violent offenders. And basically, cognitive behavioral therapy is a very practical, very structured way of identifying and then correcting antisocial thinking and behavior. And it's as simple as what our mothers told us when we were growing up. You know, if you're angry, count to 10 before you do something. And so it's very practical. It's not Freudian in any way or those types of things. That has been proven very effective, not just alone, but in combination with things. So you want to do a sports program? Add a cognitive behavioral therapy. You want to do a music program? You want to do an employment program, an education program? Those things. And then lastly, I would say there's less research on this, but I think this, this notion of trust and credibility and legitimacy has become increasingly sort of front and center in American criminal justice. And there are places that have really been successful. Boston is one place. LA has been another place where there was very little trust between law enforcement and communities, but they improved it slowly over time. Some principles for that are called procedural justice, which is a strategy that's been used, and also a very specific and robust type of community policing. Community policing generically hasn't had a lot of success. Some people are surprised to hear that, but there are very specific versions of community policing that have been powerful. 
And so then transitioning to Latin America, one story that really hasn't been talked about enough is Sao Paulo. People focus on Rio, and Rio has had a sort of very uneven track record of reducing violence. But Sao Paulo has dramatically reduced violence over over years. And people have some suggestions why, but we don't really understand it. Medellin is also a massive success story. And there are sort of urban renewal interventions that seem to have a large impact. But there's also some questions about whether there were some changes in the criminal community at the time that might have also been responsible. And then Ciudad Juarez Juarez has also been a, a massive success story where there was a very comprehensive approach, multi-factor, very much involving the community. But again, we don't have as good an understanding of precisely why those cities had so much success. And so, you know, more, more study is needed. Ruto, I don't know if you want to also talk about some of the successes that you've seen through your work, whether those are statistically measured successes or just things that you feel like are really making a change in the communities that you're working yeah, in. Yeah, so, so far we haven't been able to do impact evaluation yeah. because our, our interventions are developing and we're improving constantly what our design of and our strategies are. We look forward to evaluate rigorously our evaluations as well. But I can tell you that we've seen a lot of success in terms of the specific areas where we're working. And something that is very encouraging for me is to hear the testimony of the communities where we work and how little things that you can do with them and just give them some capacities and possibilities to implement change by their own means can have a lot of impact. And in a context like the Venezuelan context of these days, the most terrible economic, political, humanitarian crisis that you can imagine, having people in our communities who are not into despair, that keep hope, that keep mobilized to make a change, is the most significant element, in my view, that proves that change is possible in, in Caracas, in cities that are completely violent these days but that we have the human resources and the communities who are just waiting for the right policies and the right approach from government and from Venezuelan community as a whole to overcome this strategy that we're living. As Thomas was saying, there are examples in the region and uh, cities who are very similar to our own, like the case of Medellin or, or Sao Paulo and others, Cali in Colombia as well, that we know that if they were capable of doing, we, we can do it as well. So one of my last questions is going to be to ask about where are both of you moving forward? What is the future of this research looking like? What are the big questions, Thomas, that you're still looking to answer through your current research? And then Roberto, I'd like to hear what are the next steps that you're, that you're looking for with Caracas Mi Convive? What new ideas do you have moving forward? So moving forward, I'm close to finishing a book on how to reduce violence in the United States. And my publisher is on me 24-7 about <laughs> finishing that. So that'll be done soon. But as soon as that book is finished, which is focused on the United States, I've been asked by CAF, the Latin American Development Bank, to sort of write an extra chapter to the book about what these strategies mean for Latin America. So I will very soon be sort of exploring these questions once again. 
I think looking forward to that paper, I think that one of the biggest questions that we were going to have to answer collectively, and I'll try to answer individually, is what's the proper relationship between programs that can be rigorously evaluated and proven to work or not work, and larger institutional and systemic change? And how can we create positive feedback cycles between exciting, innovative programs like Caracas, Mi Convive, and larger social, political change? And I think that'll be a very important question. I don't have the answers yet. I look forward to reading the book. (laughs) We're looking forward to expand our programs into more communities. We're hearing a lot from people in other cities of Venezuela and even some other countries in Latin America who have been interested in what we're doing. So we're looking forward in helping them develop their own interventions. I'm also looking forward to the new generation of uh, leaders that we're creating, not only in the communities that we're working, but also at a professional level. Uh, Here with me is uh, Juan Mejia, one of them who's uh, done incredible work gathering data and working in alliance with a journalist and developing a program that I think it's uh, very significant to have better information about what's going on with respect to violence in, in the city. And I look forward also to keep the dialogue with people like Thomas and what he was saying, because I believe that we have the opportunity to put into black and white, into a paper, our experiences, our our learnings, and to try to test that as public policy as well. Mm -hmm. So the learnings of these programs can inform also public policy that could make a change in our country and, and hopefully in the region as well. Great. So I guess my final question is just, we have a lot of students who listen to this podcast, and we generally like to end the podcast with a question of, What kinds of skills or courses would you recommend to students or even anybody around the world who's interested in getting more involved in this kind of work that they can start building so that they can contribute to the work that you guys are doing? Mm -hmm. So I think that this work, this particular work, violence reduction that Roberto and I have sort of committed ourselves to is an art and a science. And it's important to appreciate both sides. I think when you're in school, you have an opportunity to grab hold of the science. And so I think that if you're going to be a sort of serious player in this work moving forward, there's a baseline of statistical understanding, familiarity with evaluation and evaluation techniques that you need to have. And then from there, once you have the science, the social science, I think that you can sort of embrace the art. And that can be in many ways. Uh, some of it is by taking courses on criminal justice, but also by thinking, thinking about innovation. There's lots of innovative work, for instance, in the School of Design and interesting thoughts about how urban design can impact crime prevention. So I would say appreciate the balance. I agree with Thomas and actually being an alum from the Kennedy School, I come to appreciate more nowadays that I left school the core courses, right? And at the beginning, <laughs> I was not so happy with them, but now I understand that those tools are uh, significant to to understand the science, as Thomas was saying. I would also add that there's a lot of courses on leadership and narrative that I think are very important 
for you to be able to mobilize people into doing uh, collective work. So I think that having the opportunity to be at the Kennedy School or any other institution who has all these resources available, it's a very significant opportunity that can equip you with a lot of tools to make an impact in the world. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. This has been a fascinating conversation and good luck with the rest of your work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.